Let's hear God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. <coughs> there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. Amen. May God bless to your understanding this reading of His Word. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. John wants to take us back in his gospel, and we reflected on this last week, further than any of the other gospel writers. The gospel writers all take different places to start with, and John is picking up language from the book of Genesis when he says, in the beginning. But what beginning? Because when we look at the other gospel writers, we can see there that they started in different places at different beginnings as they saw it. Mark starts with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the coming of John the Baptist. That's the beginning of when it all happened from his perspective. Luke, of course, goes one step further back, and he starts with Jesus' earthly beginnings, with the Annunciation to Mary and the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And so he goes to the beginning of the Incarnation. And Luke also contains a genealogy, a list of names tracing Jesus all the way back through Joseph's line to Adam. And so Luke also takes us back to a different beginning. He takes us back to the beginning of humankind. 
But Matthew, who's writing largely from a Jewish perspective and mainly to a Jewish audience, he begins in a different place again. He traces uh, something of the birth narrative, but much more from Joseph's perspective. Because in a Jewish household, the man being the head of the house, his story and his line are more important. And so, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, not through Mary and Joseph. And he traces the genealogy all the way back to Abraham. He doesn't go further back, because Abraham is the beginning of the salvation story. In the book of Genesis, we find there's 11 chapters of creation and fall, and then restoration and fall, and restoration and fall, and restoration and fall. It includes Noah and the Tower of Babel, Cain and Abel, all of that stuff. And then there's a sudden break between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. If anyone ever tells you the Bible is written in two halves, don't imagine it's the Old and New Testament. The two halves are Genesis 1 to 11 and Genesis 12 to Revelation 22. Because the first bit is the creation, and a, and a creation that just kept falling from, uh, from grace. And then from chapter 12 of Genesis through to Revelation 22 is the story, is the, is the long, slow, incremental story of God's salvation plan, His rescue mission to get you back because He wants you back. And, Revel, and Genesis chapter 12 begins with the story of Abraham who was the first one to believe God and trust Him and receive the blessing and the promise of an inheritance and of uh, one who would come. And so Matthew goes back to the beginning of salvation history. John, as we saw, takes us back further. In fact, John takes us back further than anybody else in the Bible because John opens his gospel echoing and mirroring the words of Genesis, but he does so pointing to a time that even predates Genesis. Genesis begins in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the water, surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And so it describes the point of creation Whereas John goes back one stage further and describes what was going on before ever there was creation. And so we saw last week this uh, relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Saw in these opening words of John's gospel that John wants you to understand that Jesus is not just a rabbi, not just a prophet, not just someone who was sent from God not someone whose earthly human history is all we need to worry about, but He's the one who is God and was with God. And that's how rooted and connected to God we are when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. When we come into relationship with God, we do so through Jesus. And that connects us all the way to the Father. And so we were reflecting on the fact that the, the Hebrew word, davar, for word, is the same word that's used for action, word and action. 
We say things, but don't keep our promises. We make vows, but we don't fulfill them. Our words are inconsistent, but God's never so. And so what God says is what God is and is what He does. There's just an unbroken continuity between who God is and what He says. So when it says that the Word was with God and the Word was God, there's, there's no break there between word and deed. And so John wants us to think in a sense, and maybe it's helpful to think that, that God is, is the essence, the source, and Jesus the expression of that essence, the river flowing down from that source. God is the root, and Jesus the flower that has to, has to bloom from that root. God is the speaker, Jesus the Word. And so one derives and flows from the other, but is exactly the same as the other. The waters in the river Clyde, as murky as they may be, <laughs> it's the same water. It's the same water down here as it is up in the Clyde Valley. It has a source up there, but it flows down here. And there's a cycle that just carries it round and round and round again. And so, we saw that Jesus uh, is the expression of God, the source. And through God's expression, that leads to creation. So, there's the source and then the expression of the source. There's God and then His Word going forth from Him. And then His Word led to creation. Through Him, all things were made. And so, through the agency of, of the Word, all things were made. God said, let there be light. He said, let there be. And the first chapter of Genesis describes how God's active living Word led to creation. And because it led to creation, it led to life. And of course, one of the first things that God said, indeed the very first thing that God said, was, let there be light. And so, John wants you to understand how far back Jesus goes and how profoundly connected, not just connected, but uh, of the same essence Jesus is. And that will become all the more important as He goes on. So then from, from this origin back here that is so intimately connected, from which proceeds light and life, then he goes on to talk about John the Baptist and how we thought about how John the Baptist, in a sense, was a little like Mary. Mary gave birth physically to Jesus. She was the one who, who by her word, let it be to me according to your word, received the embryonic Jesus, received in the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 the conception of, of, of God. But John came as a witness. A witness speaks words. A witness, by what they say, declares that it is so, or it was so. And so we're told that John came as a witness. What does a witness do? Speaking words. 
And so John came speaking words about the coming of the Word. And so by his words, he prepared a way of faith. By his words. You see, what God has said he will do, what he's promised he will fulfill, what he has spoken will come to pass. There is nothing more profound, anchored, and rooted in all of creation than what God has said. Other people's words will come and go. Empires rise and fall. Good times, bad times will come and go. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And so John came, as it were, giving birth to the word. (laughs) In fact, John, interestingly himself, was conceived when a word was spoken to Zechariah in the temple. Because what God says comes to pass. And God wanted John the Baptist to come to pass so that he could speak words that would come to pass. Because God's word has to get out. Because it does things and it changes things. How has God's word changed you? I imagine that some of us, many of us, could look back on a time in our lives where we didn't know or take God's Word seriously. We were just following the wisdom of the world, you know, self-help books, 10 Steps to Amazing Success. There's a lot of words out there. There's a lot of people telling us fine words that sound convincing and compelling, but they don't actually have any power. They sound like a great idea but they're an aspiration and they don't have power. I don't know how it works, but it works that the Word of God has power to change us. That actually by believing what God has said, His ancient Word that is just as powerful today, your life can be changed and transformed. And you will make decisions and you will go through this coming week based on all sorts of words things people have said about you, things that people have said to you or over you, words that you tell yourself or believe about yourself. We are shaped by words, and sometimes we are bound by words. Sometimes we're bound by words that people have said to us that are not true or that are limiting. And I've known people who've spent virtually their whole lives captive to things that people have said about them. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, names will never hurt me, which we all know is, of course, the biggest lie of a lot. Because it's words that do the most damage. But by contrast, God's word is living and active. It's dynamic. It's powerful. And if believed, and if received, and if held on to, sometimes despite contrary evidence in our lives or experience, it will change you. If you will receive and believe God's word when he speaks to you forgiveness, then you may know that if God forgives you, then you are forgiven. 
If God speaks over you and says, because of my son Jesus, and you've put your faith in my son, I call you my daughter, my son, my child. Does that change anything? What does it mean to actually take God's word and let it change your life? Say, I choose this over all these other words. I choose what God says over what people say, over what my parents say, over what my friends say, over what other people have said about me. That school report that said he'll never amount to anything. Well, is that the last word on your life? Or has God's word got a more powerful dynamic than that? And so John came as a witness, a herald, preparing the way with words of the word that was coming. And then we read next about the light, the true light coming into the world. And what's the true light? There's lots of light, and then we're moving into this season of light where you know, the Christmas lights will go up and it's all very warm and cozy and comforting and trees will appear and so on. This is a a season when in the darkness we light extra lights, daylight, electric light, torchlight, firelight, all of them lights, but not the true light. God said, let there be light. And from that word came light, and from that light came day and night, relief from relentless darkness, which is how Genesis describes what was there at the beginning, just darkness, formlessness, void, emptiness. It's a gloomy picture. One of my little hobbies is to take uh, Instagram pictures. It's sad, I know, but I like it. I never cease to be amazed at the power of light. The most boring, ordinary, grim, dull view, scene or whatever can be transformed by a shaft of golden light. Scenery before the sunset finally dips can be magnificent. And within just a few moments, the same rocks that were on fire with the colors of light are dull and gray and dark and barely visible. Light transforms everything. God said, let there be light. I am no physicist, but my basic understanding is that we can only measure, understand time because of its correlation to light. Is that right? Light is the constant. And so, if we were to go back in time, we would have to go faster than the speed of light. Is that right, Stephen? That's what they say doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> sort of. Okay. There's the expert physics opinion. No, it's okay. I put him on the spot. That's not fair. But light and time are somehow related. Light is the giver of life. I was in a restaurant having lunch yesterday, and I was both impressed and indignant to see that they had a living olive tree about the same size and shape as that one, but theirs was alive, at least alive at the top, which is where it's supposed to be alive. 
And so I asked one of the waiters when he came round, I said, who looks after your plants? He said, well, we've got someone who comes in. He said, but, he said, and he pointed to something in the ceiling and he said, I think there's, there's daylight bulbs there that come on on a timer. And I know that the reason our poor olive tree has not survived too well is for the longest time it was not getting enough light. Light gives life. The absence of light deprives us of vitamin D. Light and life are part of the way God has made us, but none of them are the true light. Ordinary light gives life. True light gives spiritual life. True light helps us to see beyond this world. If I walk into a room that is illuminated by a 25-watt light bulb, I will see I will see outlines and shapes. I will see things in the proximity of that 25-watt light bulb. I will see to a certain extent in the room. If, however, I walk into that room that is illuminated with a 25-watt light bulb and I switch on the overhead light bulb, which is 150 watts, then not only will the entire room be lit up and flooded with light so that I can see everything differently and clearly, the original light will look like nothing. You'll barely see it. And so whilst we live in a world full of light and we create it and we crave it and we need it for the health of our bodies, true light is the 150-watt bulb. True light is the enlightenment when we come to see and know the living God and know that He is our Father who loves us. When we come to see and know that beyond the things we think we can see here and now, there is a whole world that we can only see just now by faith. As Paul puts it, we see through a glass darkly. Then we will see fully. In other words, there's a whole lot that we cannot see with our eyes, no matter how much physical light there is, because we need true light. And that's Jesus true light to help us to see our lives and our purpose and the point of it all in the perspective that God has sent Jesus to reveal. And so we have this somewhat sad description that Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Right there, and his own people didn't recognize him. I don't know if you've seen it. It's quite old now, but I watched again last night a a YouTube clip of a number of years ago for Comic Relief, um, Adele uh, dressed herself up as an Adele lookalike, and she went and joined in a a kind of recording of a whole load of Adele lookalikes. They were all kind of cover artists. They all covered Adele. They looked, and so more or less, these women looked like Adele, sang like Adele. There was one guy in drag, in fact. And all tried to be Adele. And so Adele herself dressed herself up as Jenny. She said, my name's Jenny. I'm a nanny from London. And she lost her kind of accent and, and all the rest of it. And they gave her a prosthetic chin and a prosthetic nose and made her up so she didn't quite look like Adele. If you've never seen it, it's, it's fun. Just, you know, put it in YouTube, Comic Relief Adele. And so there's this whole bit where all these Adele lookalikes are up on stage, and they're all taking their turn uh, doing an Adele song. 
uh, and, and recorded and so on. And, and Adele herself, a real Adele's in amongst them, pretending, she says, pretending she's got stage fright. Oh, I don't feel very well. I don't, I don't know if I can do this. And then she goes up on stage and, uh, and she starts singing. And within about five or ten seconds of her singing, one of the Adele uh, lookalikes, like cover artist, goes, it's her. And the others are going, no, it's not her. It's her. Do you think? Could it be her? Is it her? And so gradually, one by one, they gradually realize that they've been fooled and the real Adele is up there uh, in disguise performing and they've just been, uh, they've just been hanging out with their hero uh, <laughs> for the past day or two for this recording and then all is revealed and there's all sorts of uh, laughter and tears and all the rest of it. A little illustration. Right there in the midst. Right there in the midst of that group, there was Adele, those girls' hero, the object of their, their act, their singing, their performing. They didn't even know. Didn't even know that she was right there. And Jesus came into the world, and they didn't even know. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious authorities who thought they were a hotline to God, didn't even know. They took Jesus to task they arrested him. They had him put to death. They didn't even know. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, it was so obscured from recognizing him. And Jesus came to his own. But, and this promise is right in the middle of this passage. Take heed in Scripture, by the way. Often in Scripture you will find that there is a, a writing style. It's called chiastic structure, where a point is made, and at the end of the passage, you'll find a similar parallel point. And so that's why... Uh, anyway, it's going to take me too long to go through it, so I'm going to do it quickly. And then a second point is made, and a third point is made, and a high point is made. And then the third point is repeated, and the second point is repeated, and the first point is repeated. The point being that it points towards the central point, which is the most important argument. Right at the center of this passage, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become. To all who received him, all who believed in him. You know, we work really hard to get it right and be uh, right with God and be good enough for God and, and to decide what's, what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and so on. I've talked about this quite a bit lately. And yet, all of that is not the point. The point is that to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children. This world is full of orphans. This world is full of people trying to make their own way, trying to survive, trying to be good enough. This world is full of people feeling like if they don't fight their own corner and make their own way in life, there's no one else going to do it for them. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. And Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. We were 
intended to be children. We are children. We are called to be children of the living God. Children born, not of natural descent. God has no grandchildren. Only children. Not of human decision. We're not in control of God's family. Nor of a husband's will. We can't make Christians. We can receive the gift of God, which is His invitation to be His child. To receive Jesus is to believe in His name. To receive Jesus is to believe that God in His love and mercy knows who you are and where you are, and He wants to call you back. He wants to invite you in, and He has done everything that is needful to take away every hurdle, barrier, and obstacle to prevent you from knowing God as Father and knowing that you are loved and forgiven. There is nothing that you have done. There is no shame in your story. There is no guilt from your past that Jesus cannot overcome or take away, or that the cross is not big enough to heal you from. All God asks is that you believe in His Son, the one who came from before the creation of the world, the word that God spoke that cannot be broken, the promise that is not turned back, the word that was made flesh to come and get you. And by recognizing His coming and who He is, by recognizing who Jesus is, by receiving and believing in His name, God confers upon you the right, the right to be in the family, the right to be a child of God, a son or a daughter. And what He asks of you is whether you will believe and receive His Son, whether you'll believe and receive His Son, and whether you will rest in that place of having received His Son. Because God's Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. God's initiative, God's idea, God's plan, God's rescue mission, calling for a response. And that response is a response of faith which is both active and passive. What does that mean? It means that first and foremost, you have to exercise faith. You know, I talked to somebody the other day who said, ah, well, we're all Jock Tamsin's bairns, which if you're not Scottish means <laughs> we're all gods anyway. Well, we're not, although we are. We're created by God. We're created in the image of God. We are part of His creation. But a creation where there's a barrier, a barrier of brokenness that needs overcome, of guilt that needs atoned for, of shame that needs forgiven, a disconnect that though we be the creatures of the living God made in His image, 
we still need to be restored to Him, which is why the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And so God calls us, not passively just to say, well, it'll all be right in the end, and what's for you will not go by you. He calls you to exercise active faith. He calls you to choose to believe. He calls you to respond and to say and to keep saying, Lord, I believe. And maybe also help my unbelief. Lord, I receive you. I believe in your name. I want to give my life to you as you've given your life for me. And so there's the active bit of our faith where we make a choice, a decision to believe and engage and say, yes, I believe. And then there is, if you like, I don't want to call it the passive, but there's a part where actually you need to give in to stop trying to fix it or be good enough or make it right or undo it. To stop trying to work your own passage or earn your own ticket. But actually, give in to what Jesus has done for you. And that can be the hardest one of all. Believing that there's nothing that you can do except to believe and to receive. Nothing that you can do. And yes, your life will flow as, a, as an expression of what God has done for you and His love for you, but know that His love and His forgiveness, His cross, come first. And He asks you to look at that. I don't know where all of you are in your walk with God at the moment. Some of you may be here because you're inquiring and you want to know more. Some of you are already believers. But actually, it's the same for all of us. Each one of us cannot fix by ourselves. We can only receive what God has done for us receive the grace He shows to us, receive the gift of His forgiveness, receive the cross, the life, the death, the resurrection of His Son, receive His invitation to be a child and no longer an orphan, to know that you may call God as Father and believe, call Him Father and believe that He loves you. And so John concludes this opening part of his gospel with a little word of witness from John that says, just going back to the beginning, he's the one who was before me. And John goes on to say, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. Because of Jesus, there's a whole new grace instead of what went before. What went before? The law of Moses, to help people know how they could relate to God. But here's a new grace. Jesus has done it for you, has fulfilled the law for you, has relieved you of the burden of trying and striving and wondering if you'll ever be good enough to say, believe in my son, receive what he's done for you, accept the invitation to be a child and come in to the family.
And then this final verse, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. You want to know the Father? You want to know the love of the Father? You want to know the all-consuming, outrageous, extravagant, generous, loving embrace of the Father, which may well surpass any such relationship you've ever known or experienced in life. Then Jesus, the Son, the Word who was with God and is God, makes him known. Jesus lived his entire earthly life modeling what it looks like to live a human life in relationship to the Father. He only did what he saw the Father doing. He only said what the Father gave him to say. He was so filled and consumed with intimacy and love with the Father. He went in loving obedience to the cross for you and for me because of love, because of the trust and the loving, intimate relationship that caused God to endure unbelievable suffering because love triumphs. Show us the Father, said Philip once. And Philip said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so as you go into another week of work or of study, as you go amongst the ordinary business of the day, as your life is filled with the voices and the images and the things that you can see, God's invitation is to know that you're living in a 25-watt light bulb and that the true light is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which casts a much brighter light and gives us a much bigger picture. And know that in amongst the ordinary, tedious, boring things that you will have to do this week, you have a Father who whispers His love over you. You have a Father who has gone to extraordinary lengths to come and get you. You have a Father who is for you and not against you. You have a Father who has made a way so that whatever you have done that makes you feel, I'm just not sure I could ever be good enough, then know that He is good enough for you and extends the grace of His good enoughness to you and for you through the cross. Your job is to exercise the faith, believe in the one that he sent, and to walk by faith in the ordinary things of this week. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our loving Father, we thank you for this beautiful, powerful, poetic word which tells us that we are invited to come into an intimate family relationship with you, to know that any and every obstacle or barrier to that has been removed at the cross, and to know that we, through faith in Jesus, are connected to the one who is before the creation of the world, the one who is in you and with you, 
and that you want to be in us and with us and us in you so that we might know that beyond this world with all its limitations and frustrations, its fears, its challenges, its pain and its brokenness, you have overcome the world. So may we go into the challenges of this week with love in our hearts. May your word trump every other word that would seek to confine, repress, limit, or hold us captive. And may we walk by faith and not by sight. And so grant, Lord, that in every place that we go, light may shine through our lives. We pray for colleagues. We pray for neighbors. We pray for family members. We pray for those that we study alongside. We pray for those that we live with, perhaps in flats or halls. We pray for those who have not seen or understood. We pray for those to whom and for whom you've come, and yet they have not recognized who you are. Lord, reveal yourself and show us how we, in turn, may be agents of that revelation, spokespersons of the living word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.